Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. This is Taria from Columbus Can't Wait. Um, just wanted to come in uh, and drop a, a note to you all that this episode's a little bit different than what you're used to from us. Um, we conducted some interviews over a couple weeks to really explore what it means to be disabled in Columbus, particularly as Black folks and people of color. Um, and so we are excited to show you all that we heard. We heard from people um, about their lived experiences. So just so you know, there is um, some references to police violence in this episode. Um, and we also had a chance to talk to uh, some disability rights experts about the rights of disabled folks in our community and also the lack thereof. And so we hope that you all learn a lot and you enjoy. And as always, thanks for listening. Yo, this is Akis. And this is Taria. And you're listening to Columbus Can't Wait. Either do politics. Our politics do you. So hey, everybody. Welcome to Columbus Can't Wait. It's Taria. I know this is going to be a little different for you all because guess what? It's only me hosting today. Let me tell you about Malcolm. So this dude had a dentist appointment. So he is somewhere with like Novocaine. He can't talk. So I decided to give him a break tonight. And (laughs) it's just me. So welcome. And we have a really special episode. All of our episodes are special, but I'm super excited about this one because I love for to feel like we are all going on a learning journey together. And so I think that you all are going to learn a lot um, this week about um, something that we don't necessarily always um, have widespread conversations about. So tonight we have on Tabitha and Tavis <laughs> and Taria, all tease, um, from Disability Rights Ohio, which is a nonprofit here in Columbus that advocates for the rights of folks with disabilities. Um, Tavis is a current law student and law clerk from Disability Rights Ohio, and Tabby is an attorney. Um, and actually, I know her because we have worked together in the past. So thank yeah. you so much for coming, guys. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, This is really um, an exciting episode, I think, because I feel like one of the reasons why I love doing this podcast is because people just have an opportunity to really like dive in and learn long form something that they don't necessarily get to like and the local the local piece to it. So thank you so much for coming out. do you want to talk a little bit about Tavis, like how you kind of got involved with with Disability Rights Ohio and what you all do there? Um, yes, I can uh, say a few things about it. Um, so, well, well, let me let me let me interrupt you. Really oh yeah, fast. no Sorry. problem. So the whole reason why I got connected with you two is because of the Safety Collective here in Columbus, which we did an episode with them, the season season two, where we talked about police violence, and we had, um, I mean, we had lots of people on that season, but one of the folks we had on was Steve David, and Steve has connected me with both of you. So can you talk a little bit first about your work with the the safety collective and give people a refresher on kind of what that whole thing is. Yeah. I, so Steve is amazing and I, I love that episode. Um, I Thank listened you. to it. Um, 
So DRO um, in the summer of 2020 had wanted to do more work in regards to um, addressing, you know, racial issues and policing issues and things um, of that nature. And so Steve was getting people together for this Columbus Safety Collective Mm -hmm. and having all these different connections um, was put into contact with uh, some of the attorneys at DRO. Mm -hmm. Um, I had just come on as a law clerk from that summer, uh, for that summer, and they asked me if I wanted to um, do a lot of the work uh, that went into uh, aiding the Columbus Safety Collective uh, in terms of um, DRO's presence and our voice and um, our addition to that collective. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, of course. Um, Sounds great. So the Columbus Safety Collective is a group that consists of a lot of different organizations, you know, DRO, um, social workers, mm-hmm. um, and other advocates um, like the ACLU of Ohio, um, who are all together to advocate for a better response for those who are experiencing mental health crisis. As the historically the current system was, you know, we send police officers to these types of situations, Mm -hmm. uh, which has resulted in harmful outcomes um, that could be violent, but they could also be things like uh, involuntary hospitalization, also known as pink slipping, um, which still can be, you know, bad for the people who have to then, you know, experience that, that, um, that type of situation. So we are looking uh, for the city of Columbus to implement uh, a peer response model, okay. a model where you know we have a person, the peer, who has lived experience, has been in that situation before, okay. and from that firsthand experience, they know you know what a person who is going through that needs because they've been there themselves, right? And so, if we can have someone like that assisted with a a, me, a, a medic mm-hmm. um, in case you know there's some type of medical emergency or uh, situation that requires that type of attention we want that uh, as well versus um, the um, the different models that they've had that right now exists. that are in, that are in place right. um, where it's either a crisis intervention train intervention trained officer um, or a clinician that's still an officer, that's still, that's still an officer. <laughs> yeah. yes you know you yeah. you can't really take away the um, the hostility of a, a badge and you know the power to uh, end mm-hmm. someone's life mm-hmm. whether or not they've been trained um, on you know what a person might be going through right. that, that hostility is just going to be there right um, right so Thanks for that, right? Mm-hmm. And and even what you just said is, um, it's so important, I think, to have this peer component in the work. Um, so for the folks listening, you're probably like, okay, so what do those two things have to do with each other? But when I was thinking about this episode, I started thinking about how, like, I feel like... Um, the word disabled or disability is like very narrowly defined and and most folks understanding even my own. So can one of you talk more about like what is actually, what does that actually include and in like the, maybe the misconceptions about what being disabled actually means? 
Yeah, so at least 20% of the population is technically disabled, but it's very narrowly defined, right? Mm -hmm. So at Disability Rights Ohio, when we're looking at the people we serve, we look at anyone with any kind of disability, whether or not it's been formally diagnosed, because we know about disparities in medical treatment, how doctors treat black women versus white women versus white men. Mm -hmm. Uh, So really anyone who expresses that they have issues with anxiety, they have issues with depression, they qualify as disabled when it comes to the services we give. Okay. So- in my opinion, that's a good chunk of the population. That's a lot of us. Even if it's not a permanent anxiety or depression issue, Mm -hmm. many of us have experienced some type of disability at some point in our lives. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. So that means that there are a lot of folks that could tap into what you all offer. Um, how um, How do you feel like... Um, an organization like this. Well, first let's talk about what Disability Rights Ohio does and just like a, a more, more broader sense. Like what are the services that you that the organization offers? Yeah, so at Disability Rights Ohio, we primarily work on bigger policy issues. Okay. We filed a lot of major class actions against the governor or mm-hmm. against the Ohio Department of JFS mm-hmm. to force them to give the services to people with disabilities that are required by law. Okay. And it can be really frustrating when your local county board of DD, developmental disabilities, or your local mental health board is denying you the services that you need. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so that's our big focus when it comes to individual services, most of the time we're just giving advice on the phone to support people in self advocacy, providing the information they need to advocate for themselves. Okay. And then, um, so are y'all like the hammer? Like y'all come in like, Hey, you're not doing what you are supposed to be doing by law to support this person in Columbus. Yeah. And occasionally, and across the state of Ohio. Okay. So occasionally, you know, they'll say, well, I've told the DD board what you told me. I shared the flyer you gave me. They're still shutting me down. I'll say, okay, how about I go sit in in on your next meeting? Yeah. And just let them know like, okay, so this is Darrow here. I'm sure you remember Ball v. Kasich, Mm -hmm. um, the settlement you signed saying that you're going to make a point to serve people who are Medicaid eligible better Mm -hmm. across the whole state. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it really is just... After that meeting, they're a bit more cooperative. Yeah, (laughs) they change their tune, right? So I feel, and I feel like that is another reason why we wanted to have you all on the show because we find that, well, I find even just in my own experience, um, as marginalized people, it sometimes takes like that extra like push for something to actually happen. So can you talk about like demographics? Like how do you, what are the folks um, you serve? Like who are they? So um, a sampling of some of the the clients that I'm working directly with right now. Uh, I have a mother who has a child with severe mental health issues. Okay. Uh, Sometimes that can be violent in their home. And when she went to the County Board of Disabilities, they said, well, we can get an aide in your home to help you Mm -hmm. three hours a day, which is not enough. She's got other kids. Right. And when she said, you know, I'm going to have to quit my job if I'm going to be able to take care of my my daughter. Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, you're required to turn to natural supports before you turn to Medicaid. What's natural supports? Yeah. So natural supports is this term in Medicaid that says, if you already have, say, a stay-at-home mom or an auntie or someone who's taking care of you, that you should utilize that to the full extent it's available before you ask for like a nurse's aid in your house or someone to come in and help with your medications. Okay. But they can't expect your family members to quit their jobs 
and just become your nurse full time. Yeah. So they can't um, they can't coerce natural supports into your life. They're just supposed to take them into account. Right. Yeah. So then if the if the natural support stuff is happening, right? Yeah. How does that affect folks like black folks who are traditionally very communal have, you know, or even even like folks of other ethnicities who are, you know, traditionally more communal and they have like more folks living with them or more folks that they support. How does that affect them being able to access services quicker? Those folks are going to be less. Or does it at all? I think it does because those folks are more likely to hear from Medicaid. Oh, you got it. You don't, mm. you don't need us to give you yeah. a waiver to hire a nurse's aide. You got family around you all the time, Okay, um, which can be really unfair to the family because it's, it's almost as if it doesn't, it's culturally insensitive the way Medicaid's operating. Cause it's not taking into account the fact that you're not giving one-on-one attention to a disabled child all the time. You're in a communal space with your family taking care of kind of everybody. Mm-hmm. And you might be working one or two jobs. You might all kind of be doing that. And I imagine it's probably hard too if you're, if you are like if you immigrated here and you came with, with like many families yep. to be able to get access to what you need. I feel like I'm on the right track here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they are they are quick to deny your request for services okay. and then they they're they're quick to keep them as minimal as possible and you got to fight to get more hours, you got to fight to get more aids, um doing state hearing appeals and and all these things and it's it's just wild how how much families have to fight to get the services that they're entitled to under federal law. So how does that affect folks, families and, you know, the person who's actually experiencing that? Like, what do what is what do those type of barriers do to a person and do to a family? I feel like it's kind of a weird situation where the more uh, familial support you have, the less the uh, state uh, thinks that they need to supply um, mm-hmm. care, you know, okay. for a person in that situation. And I mean, that can be uh, devastating, you know. Right. Um, especially, you know, for a child in that situation who actually needs um, mm-hmm. that care, that can, that, that's adverse. One, because if they're not, you know, in your, in your example, mm-hmm. you know, that child's only getting three hours a day, whereas that child might need seven in order to um, actually get better or just um, stay um, in the place that that child's at. But without those supports, you know, you're losing, the child's one is losing out on that care. Two, you have the mother who's also struggling now because she has to take care of that child and that's taking away from her job, uh, her other kids, the rest of the family. Mm -hmm. And so you have a situation where not only one individual is hurting from from it, but it it extends to the entire family. Mm -hmm. Wow. So do you have do you have any like specific examples that maybe we've seen of this, like in the news that people would be familiar with that they could maybe like draw any parallels with? Yeah, it's tricky because not only are so many disabilities invisible, but sometimes the disability community is really invisible to the media too. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, we've been trying to look at when someone's applying for, someone has a mental illness and they're applying for assistance with mental health and they're getting shut down left and right Mm -hmm. until eventually... um, they're not, they're not able to manage it and they have a crisis, a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's often when it comes into the public because someone calls 911, they don't know what to do. And then the cop shows up and either 
assaults them, God forbid the police officer kills them, even CIT trained officers. I have a whole list of names of people who've been killed by CIT trained officers and, um, or they get pink slipped, right? And so they right. get Can involuntary. Can you talk more about what that means? Yeah. So that's when you might see it in the news where um, a pink slip in Ohio is when you're involuntarily committed to a psychiatric ward. Um, and if you really want to dig in, it's Ohio revised code 5122.10. I do not like the statute or the way it's written. Okay. Uh, What it says is that once the police officer, so any police officer, doctor, psychiatrist, psychologist, or psychiatric nurse can pink slip somebody. Okay. They write a statement about why this person must be involuntarily committed for treatment. Um, And involuntary is the key word here because when there's coercion in treatment, it's less successful treatment most of the time. Okay. Um, but the, the statement they write is often on a pink sheet of paper. Okay. And then they're taken to the hospital, usually the ER, the psych ward. Within 24 hours, they have to be evaluated to see if the pink slip is valid. Generally, it's just stamped. They say, yep, it's valid. But that's when the clock starts for three court days of involuntary commitment. Okay. So if that's over a weekend, God forbid a holiday weekend, your 72 hour hold isn't a 72 hour hold. It can be up to six days. Wow. And by then you may have lost your job, right? which means you're going to lose your apartment, which means you might lose custody of your kids. And most of the time on a three day hold in a psych ward, you're not getting a lot of treatment. Mm-hmm. Usually what they do is sedate you to bring you out of mania. If that's the, the struggle that you're having, um, try and get you to sleep. They try and get you to eat three square meals a day. The staff can be really kind but they haven't come up with a treatment plan or figured out what medication you need, what kind of counseling you need. Three days isn't enough to, to get any of that figured out. And so they're often then released after, at that point um, to a lost job, lost apartment, less supports. And then down the road, when you're like, hey, why don't we apply for Medicaid and see if we can get you a nurse's aid or see if we can get you support? They said, oh, I've had services. Yeah. I don't want any of that. Right. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, you might've just ruined someone's life with a pink slip when the whole point behind it was that you wanted them to get help. Right. Wow. So thanks for explaining that because I do hear, I hear that a lot. This is a, this is a conversation that I've had with people before. It's like, oh, this person is experiencing this thing. Like, you know, what would you do or what do you think I should do or who can you connect me with? And the first conversation is, well, you can't make anyone, you know, you can't, you, you can't, unless an officer is involved or any of the folks that you just mentioned, you can't make someone do that. But what you're explaining here is too, that's just not helpful if they're not at that space where they want to stay in treatment because they'll just be released after, you know, the, the three or four days. And they're then released to a world that is probably significant, significantly worse than what they were experiencing in the first place. Because they've lost some of those supports there. Do you see that? What Do you have data or anything like you can point to? And I know, like, obviously not off the top of your head because... I hate when people ask me that question, but just like anecdotally, like who is generally pink slipped? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, um, I was telling Tavis on our way in, um, one of my friends, someone I love very much was pink slipped last week. Wow. Okay. Uh, which was wild. Cause it was right after Tavis and I met to talk about coming as, to speak with you. Mm-hmm. And this is somebody who, um, 
has been diligent about counseling, has been diligent about their physical and mental health, meditation, exercise, doing what they can to manage their issues and tried some medications that didn't really work. Mm -hmm. And then life stuff happened. Mm -hmm. That was just really, really stressful. Mm -hmm. And they got into um, a situation where they they were so overstimulated, they couldn't calm themselves down. Mm -hmm. They could not calm back down. Mm -hmm. And part of it was delusions and paranoia. Yeah. So they didn't understand what was happening around them either. And they felt like they were in danger and they weren't. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so um, a lot of my clients that have been pink slipped are people who um, deal with delusions or paranoia, um, deal with any kind of mania that brings you way, way up. Um, my mental health issues, usually it's depression. It's way down. I don't, I don't get the other end of it, mm-hmm. which can be a lot more dangerous in terms of like police interactions are more likely... Um, but people who are having trouble bringing themselves out of that mania and the people around them don't know how to how to get them safe. Right. And what was so frustrating was my friend, their family um, did not want to call the police. Right. But there's no one else to call in Columbus because mm-hmm. Columbus does not have a non-police in-person response. Right. They're not going to send a nurse to you. They're not going to send a social worker to you without a cop. Right. So six cops show up at their house. Scary. And very scary. And they say, you can either get in the car willingly or we'll put you there. Mm-hmm. Now me right now, completely lucid. You think I'm going to walk toward a police car and climb in? No. No. <laughs> I would no. not right now. So then they're like, there. right. So then six cops <laughs> physically ever. put them in the car, you mm-hmm. know, which is terrifying. Loved ones watching, scared yeah. for them. Yeah. Um, so how are you all working to... Like, what, like, do you have specific plans around that in terms of like advocacy that you're doing and things to stop people from um, being pink slipped? Is that something that you can, is that one of those things that that's probably going to take a long time for that actually to happen? But like, where is that? I'm sure there's other places in the United States where they're doing it less or they're doing it differently. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I feel like, um, you know, issues of like, pink slipping, that's all involved in, in, you know, the right type of response. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's lumped in what we've been talking about before uh, in terms of police responding to that. You know, Mm -hmm. if, you know, there's a person walking around in the neighborhood and say, you know, they might be explaining, uh, displaying some signs of delusion, you know, someone will call, Mm -hmm. you know, you get a suspicious person, right? And so the police show up and they show up in a way that's threatening because, I mean, that's kind of, uh, that, that, that's their job is to use force for the mm-hmm. most part. But, you know, in the modern day, we are using them for, you know, anything and everything. Mm-hmm. And that's not what they're trained to do. Right. Um, so then you get a situation where this person uh, who needs care and help um, is then, you know, met with, as we said before, you know, that threat, right? Because Mm -hmm. everyone notices you. You see a police officer, right? You see the badge, you see authority. Mm -hmm. Um, You might have some, you know, subconscious subconscious, uh, ideas on what they can do, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so from there, you, if if it's a good day, you might get uh, pink slipped, right? If it's a day where they're like, oh, we, you know, we can actually see um, that this person is not in their right state right now. So, you know, we're going to, you know, handcuff them, put them away, you know, we'll call up, um, whatever is the nearest behavioral health center and, you know, that's it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but that that doesn't really address the problem. You know, that person will get out, you know, depending on what Tabby said, right? If it's on a Friday, they'll get out, you know, six days later and they're going to be worse off. One, because once they do get to the point where they've calmed down, they're going to feel as they should, right? Very slighted, right? You're going to feel like, wow, all that uh, power um, was taken out of my hands and instead of having someone who has been in, you know, say a person who has lived experience as having um, delusions or um, a disability where they uh, experience that. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked to people who ha are peer mentors, right? Uh, I mean, peer support specialists. Um, and they've said that, you know, they've responded to some of these calls and been like, you know, oh, what would help me, you know, when I used to be in this situation is, you know, could breathing exercise, some other type of technique. And that de-escalates the situation where then, you know, you don't either need to be uh, responded to by police or, you know, sent to some sensor where um, harmful things could happen. Mm -hmm. And I mean, and it makes sense, right? If you were um, in a state that you couldn't really process things and the next thing you know when you're... Um, at the right state of mind. Mm -hmm. um, you're in some type of facility and you've been, you know, drugged up and just kind of put in this place, you know, restricted and your access of movement is taken away. You're going to come out there and you're going to think, wow, you know, I never want to do that again. So if it Absolutely. comes comes to the point where you're now in that state where you can say, wow. Oh. No, 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 you're fine. That was just me. Just Oh, my bad. Tapping. No, you're okay. <laughs> you're okay. When you're, um, when you're then in that state where you can actually make those decisions being like, wow, uh, I would like to get this type of treatment. You're going to say no way because I've experienced that treatment and that tre treatment was harmful. Like right. that hurt me. I don't, I don't trust that system. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, as an, uh, a reasonable person would, you know, yeah, absolutely. How, so how did you all get the idea for peer support specialists? Is that, are they using that somewhere else? Like, and it's working? Yeah. So, um, Cahoots in Oregon okay. has been around since the sixties. It started out as a volunteer program called the Bummer Squad. Okay. And when people were struggling with psychedelics at like Grateful Dead concerts, they had volunteers there to help calm people down and help them out. Okay. And that grew to, um, a contract with the city where they're in charge of all wellness checks all death notification knocks wow. and then any mental health calls. And the first person, they, the people they send, they have no authority to pink slip. Okay. So it's a peer and a medic and they go in and talk to the person, help deescalate them and then connect them to long-term services. Okay. So they can actually get the counseling and medication they're going to need. So you see that cahoots in Oregon, uh, there's also pad and Atlanta. Mm -hmm. There's, um, the EMS has their own unit just for mental health response. Cause mm -hmm. it makes sense to have a health response to a health emergency. And because of the way we criminalize disability, we have a law enforcement response to mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's that's part of that. Um, Cause yeah, if they don't pink slip you, they can charge you with a whole bunch of things. They can charge you with resisting arrest and yeah. damage to property. Um, but there are a bunch of cities around the country that are doing this and they're doing it without sending you know, a police officer who is much more expensive to send on a call than a social worker, a medic, and a peer re right. response specialist who's not going to have the authority to pink slip. They can call backup if they need to, um, but they're able to then connect them to the services they really need. So how, and this is, you're going to be like, duh, but I, I have to ask this question. How does, because this season is all about black spaces, how does something like this make space spaces more safe for black people because how are they being um how are we being um 
affected by the things that we're talking about. And I'm, I would guess just from my own experience that it's disproportionately. It is disproportionate that people are going to turn to a law enforcement response when a black person's in crisis. And we mm-hmm. see that, you know, if you're at a concert and or a public or any kind of public space, if you're at a grocery store and someone comes in who seems delusional or who is overdosed and isn't in their right mind, people are more likely to call the cops and ask for a harsh law enforcement response than if it's a tiny white girl like me, they're more likely to say, shouldn't we take her to the ER? Mm. And so, I mean, every space is going to get more accessible and safer for folks when we're not calling in someone with a gun to come and have a criminal response when someone just needs some help. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like this whole city would be so much safer because like when my friend was in crisis last week, there was no one to call but the Columbus police. And I'll tell you in in that position, I don't know what I would have done because when I've had mental health crises, I suffered through it in silence, hoping one of, one of my family members or somebody would, would answer the phone uh, because I'm not calling the cops. Yeah. So I would imagine that like folks um, in my community probably feel like if if what we're talking about is is obviously the case, then people probably turn to family or church, which those folks are not trained to also help with this. And then it also then just turns into a vicious cycle where there is a police response because there is nothing currently in Columbus that like, I guess, so where are folks turning to? Like when, when folks come to talk to you, what do they say that, that they're doing for help? If anything, um, in, in my experience, uh, a lot of these people are advocating now. Mm-hmm. Um, they're trying to make the changes that what they wish were in place when right. they were um, going through that crisis. Mm-hmm. Because you know, even to this day, you know, we're the Columbus Safety Collective. We're working towards it, right? We're working for it. We're um, trying to show. Um, the city that this is what the the people want, right? Mm-hmm. This is what um, Columbus as a community wants to see. We want to see uh, uh, alt- alternative, uh, non-police, you know, peer-led response to these types of situations that don't uh, need to involve uh, violence or um, any type of response that's going to result in more harm to an individual that's already struggling, mm-hmm. right? And so they're joining us right there. Um, they're talking to other organizations. They're either within the, uh, collective or, um, on their own trying to push for, uh, this alternative. And what can like, what can folks do to help that aren't already engaged and what can we do just like on an everyday basis to, you know, make space to make sure that that folks aren't harmed, that people are feeling, you know, that they have access, that they're feeling, um, you know, comfortable. What would you say would be some of those things? Yeah, for me, it's been about learning to be a good neighbor Mm -hmm. and learning what compassion in your community really means. Yeah. Because um, a lot of us uh, are uncomfortable when we're approached by a houseless neighbor on the street. Um, We're frightened by mental illness um, if a and friend, people don't think about that yeah. as a disability. Right. Yeah. They don't realize that a lot of times there's an underlying disability that has caused this person to be where they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of times it is a disability that puts someone out of work. 
Mm-hmm. And then that's how they lost their housing. And then that's why they are where they are. Mm-hmm. And maybe they tried to get help from the system and was pink slipped or arrested or treated poor. And they said, you know what? I'm not taking your help anymore. Right. I'll figure out how to live out here on my own yeah. and I'll just get by. Mm-hmm. And so um, the statistic that really shocked me was to realize that only, um, I believe it's only four to 5% of violent crimes are committed by people with mental illness with serious mental illness and only four to five percent of the population has serious mental illness, Mm. which means there's no correlation. Right. So most violent crime is committed by people in their right mind. Mm. The problem is when you look at our jails and prisons, we pack them full of people with mental illness. Majority of people in there have mental illness and it's for nonviolent crimes. Yeah. So our, our movies, you know, our like murder podcasts, they say, you know, it's the psychosis. It's these people with mental illnesses that are violent and dangerous and that isolates people. And when Absolutely. you're, when you're isolated, that's when you don't reach out for help to your mm-hmm. friends, to your neighbors, to doctors, to Medicaid, to hospitals. Um, so I think part of it is just recognizing you may know someone who has sociopathy, who has schizophrenia, who has serious mental illness, and they're not any more violent than you. Mm-hmm. They deserve your compassion and they deserve to have community too. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really hard because we've been, we're constantly told to be afraid of the mentally ill. Yeah. How did you unlearn? Is it just... Um, that, that statistic really shocked me when I was doing yeah. domestic violence law, um, realizing that a lot of the abusers in my cases had no mental illnesses at all. And then my clients who had severe trauma, who some had like actual brain damage, um, they were being stereotyped and treated poorly in the divorce and custody cases. Mm. And I was seeing how the system treats people with mental illness versus how they treat people who are actually violent. Yeah. And realizing like, oh gosh, this is not the same. They're not, cor- not the yeah, same. they're not yeah. cor- correlated. And then, you know, friends of mine that have had mental illness and coming to terms with my own mental illness and mm-hmm. suicidal ideations and mm-hmm. judging myself for that, hiding it and realizing um, mental illness doesn't get better in the dark. You got to shine light on it. You got to have a community. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, being less prejudiced against myself, against my neighbors, my clients. It's yeah. been, and I'm still learning. Yeah. I, I accidentally say like, oh, that's crazy. That's insane. I'm trying to like take that out of my vocab. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a normal part of most of our be- yeah. vocabulary, including mine. I probably say that Me every too. day, <laughs> but <laughs> that's too. why I like these conversations are so important because you don't even think about, you know, and, and again, we're just talking about folks who are hostless. People people think, people don't necessarily link a mental illness as a disability. People think a disability yep. is something yep. physical that, that you can always see, but that's just not the case. So I'm appreciative that we're getting more language around this, but I'm sure that you also do, do get people who need your advocacy and need your help who have a physical um disability how does is would you say that columbus is an accessible city for folks who have who are you know trying to move about at all because i i mean i don't i wouldn't you know look at it and say that it is not accessible part of it is like we don't have a subway system our bus system you know transportation but even like the courthouse like the old courthouse where you go for like traffic violations and misdemeanors um there's a, I remember in law school, there was a class where we learned the American with Disabilities Act. Mm-hmm. And part of the project was to go to the courthouse and see if it was compliant 
to okay. show us with tape measures that it was not. Right. It's one of those courtrooms you can't get a wheelchair into. Yeah, right. You're <laughs> it's right. Wild. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I feel like too, Columbus being an old, like a fairly old city who's like still just trying to, I guess, adapt would would mean that that's also a reason why we don't see as, as much, you know, accessibility for people. Um, what about as far as like how, I'm just going to use an example like Columbus City Schools is, you know, navigating and treating children who have whether it's, you know, a mental health disability or a physical disability. Do you see a lot of, you know, parents who are calling you all? Yeah. So I've, I've had cases where I've um, done IEPs before the IEP meetings, redrafted IEPs and worked with families. And what's an IEP? Cause some oh, people yeah. don't know what an IEP, IEP um, is. So if you have any kind of disability as a child, that's impacting your learning, you are entitled under federal law. And it's my, it's probably my favorite federal law. The Individual Disabilities Education Act, the IDEA, is a super well-written law. And I, you'll mm-hmm. probably never hear me say that again, Tavis. <laughs> I can complain about how laws are drafted. <laughs> IDEA, awesome. Um, it gives students a right to an individualized education plan, mm-hmm. an IEP, to make sure that they are actually getting educational benefit from the way things are managed. Okay. Um, but in my past life at Legal Aid, we were seeing so, so often that it actually became our racial justice project at Legal Aid where they were working on cases where black children were disciplined for acting out, um, suspended, given detention, um, kindergartners expelled for the year for behavior. And meanwhile, in more expensive schools, you know, schools that are in um, richer neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. these white kids are then, you know, diagnosed with ADHD and autism and given more support and help so they can succeed. And it was just stark how some of these school districts were treating very similar situated kids. The only difference you could see was their race. Mm -hmm. So really infuriating the, you know, the school to prison pipeline is real. Um, But if you ask for your IEP and you enforce your rights, it's written that the IDEA is written to empower parents to advocate Mm -hmm. for their kids. Um, which is incredible. So if you, if the child's lucky enough to have a parent that has the time and the ability to advocate, you can push your way through and get a really good education for your kid. Good. That's awesome. How do you, do you work at all with any other like organizations in Columbus to, to, to do that work or like collaborate at all? We do have, so at Disability Rights Ohio, we do have an education and employment team. Okay. And they have a number of partnerships they're working on. I'm okay. not sure who they're working with in Columbus. Okay. Um, but they have, um, for example, we have a special education clinic that we do once a month on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And we bring in um, different speakers and organizations to come and educate parents on their rights. And then we have attorneys there to give brief legal advice to the parents that have attended. Yeah, so we do that about that. once a month, I think. Um, but that's on the, uh, we're on the... Tavis and I are on the civil rights team and our education employment team are, are doing all the awesome stuff with IEPs. Okay. So civil rights team. So you said you mentioned advocacy, like what are some of the other things that the civil rights team specifically does? Uh, it's a lot around mental illness right okay. now. So um, we're looking at, because most of the people in jails and prisons have a mental illness diagnosis that makes our jails and prisons one of the biggest mental health care providers in the country. And a lot of times they're providing no care. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at mental health services in jails and prisons. We take an abolitionist approach. So nothing that's going to put more money into a prison or have them hire more people, um, but things that'll advocate directly for the people who are there. 
Um, I'm also working on a foster care project. So a lot of kids are taken away from their families. Um, very small percentage, it's actually abuse. I think it's yeah. closer to like 18% where there's actually abuse. Otherwise it's things like neglect, like mom didn't have food in the fridge or she didn't have a babysitter and left the kids home alone. So then they take the kid and put him in a treatment facility that's owned by a billion dollar investment fund. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they don't really have an incentive to get the kid back home. Right. So the foster care system, you know, they're supposed to be in this treatment center to like get support for their trauma. And while they're, while their parents figure out their situation and that's not what's happening. That's not what's, yeah. So we're looking at foster care facilities, we're looking at jails and prisons. Um, we're looking at the 911 emergency response in Columbus in particular. And am I missing any projects? Oh, voting access. Yes. We're going to be registering people to vote in jails. Oh, that's awesome. It's going to be awesome. Our goal is to try to get into every jail, but we'll see. Yeah. There's over 70. Have you all done any of that yet? Have you started that project yet? Getting people registered? The voting we haven't started yet. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, but okay. we'll be going in. I was uh, interested to know if how how that's going. So we do we'll have, to have you on again, so you can talk yeah. about that. Yeah, work. Yeah. yeah, that'll be interesting. That's really amazing because I'm sh- also sure that like there are people that would want to support, you know, doing something like that because that's that's so important. Um, I did have a question for you. How did you decide to go this, like what made you decide to go this route for your law career? Um, well, I I went to law school, you know, as uh, some people do because, you know, they want to help people or make some type of change. Uh, prior to law school, I was really interested in uh, social work. Um, and so I always had a mindset of wanting to be in person, like a, a one-on-one um, with a person, you know, who needs needs and being able to uh, help provide access uh, to those needs, or at least be able to uh, get someone in touch with someone who can give those services. Um, it wasn't until I took a few law classes in at my undergraduate school that I, I thought maybe uh, my interests could be uh, better served um, through a legal uh, a legal pathway. Mm-hmm. And so from there, I, I decided to go uh, to law school. Um, I applied to Disability uh, Rights Ohio because I had um, I had looked online at some of the things they were doing and I knew I had uh, an interest in um, civil, uh, civil rights and mm-hmm. disability is within that, uh, if not the um, the under, underlining, underlying uh, core that mm-hmm. keeps those things together. Uh, so I was really uh, excited to, to join um, yeah. and be able to do some of this uh, important work. Um, I get really uh, passionate about these issues mm-hmm. uh, because they affect you know so many people. And I think uh, people tend to think about disability in terms of... Um, like we were talking about physical appearance, uh, mm-hmm. physical, um, uh, physical, um, attributes, mm-hmm. um, limitations. Um, but really disability can be, you know, internal as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, the fact is that at everyone at some point, uh, in their life is going to suffer from not suffer is going to have to deal with uh, mm-hmm. a type of a uh, disability. And, you know, that can come from age or, uh, develop an illness or, um, having a, a relative um, who has one of those things, but either way, it's it's something that touches you know every person that has or ever you know will live if if um, if they are to live long enough. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to 
you know, educate people on disability and really think about it more often uh, because it's something that's, you know, so prevalent to mm-hmm. us as, you know, human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because it's so universal, you know, every, every culture, every person, it touches everything, mm-hmm. you know, we need to be conscious mm-hmm. about um, being inclusive, mm-hmm. you know, to people who are not only dealing with disabilities that are physical ones that, you know, people um, think about when they think of the term disability, but we need to be inclusive of uh, mental health disabilities as well, Um, as well as um, short-term disabilities. You know, if you are a person that gets into an accident and then you're impaired um, for maybe not forever, but for a short period of time, I think we overlook the fact that uh, disability is a spectrum mm-hmm. and that it can it can be temporary or it can be um, it can be uh, long term, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I, I think it's something that I've uh, developed a really uh, a really profound interest in. Yeah. yeah, I I I appreciate what you just said, and I I loved what you said too that. Because I think it's true is that um, this is like an invisible, like people Mm -hmm. people don't, people don't, I don't, even when we were doing our, you know, starting to think about who we were going to have on to the show, I was like, man, we need to make sure that we don't ignore a population that is so often ignored. Like that's the point why we're here. So I'm just really appreciative of the work that you all are doing. And I'm just excited for you all. I mean, I know that like your work is known throughout, you know, the the state, of course, Central Ohio, but just having another platform for you to be able to to talk about the work that you're doing, because I really want to make sure that, you know, part of the reason why folks don't get services or use services because they don't know how to get to them. They don't know how to advocate or fight for themselves. And so, you know, anyone who listens to this probably knows someone who is possibly having, you know, a struggle trying to get a connection to services to find an attorney that will be able to, you know, help them and help them advocate. So this is just such an important conversation. And I'm just grateful that, you've come on to to have the conversation with me. How do people, what do people need to do to find you? Yeah, so um, the best way to get to us is through our website, disabilityrightsohio.org. We're also on Twitter, which I believe is disabilityrtsoh. Okay. Um, the Columbus Safety Collective is on Instagram okay. at CBUS Safety Collective. Okay. Those are the easiest ways. Our intake number is on our website. So if you're dealing with a situation and you want some advice over the phone and to be provided some fact sheets and guidance, um, you can go through our intake line to be connected to an attorney. Um, but yeah, it's uh, amazing. Yeah, I've... Uh, it's been wonderful having Tavis at Disability Rights Ohio. Yeah. After his clerkship ended, we're like, oh, how else are we going to keep him on staff? We what do law clerks out. do? Tell the people because they might not know. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I do um, a, a lot of different things. Um, I got sometimes you I'm. Paper. No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did uh, when I was an intern. It was even worse. <laughs> uh, I can do things ranging from. Um, legal research um, and drafting like memos uh, to help uh, attorneys to um, it, uh, do some of the busy work in, in terms of um, 
discovering like legal precedents and um, some uh, trial analyzation. Um, Or, you know, I can be doing things such as um, being a part of the Columbus Safety Collective and uh, being a part of that and working on our policy pieces. Or um, I also talk to individuals, Mm -hmm. um, especially for the the work that we're doing in terms of the... uh, uh, alternative to police uh, crisis response, Um, talking to individuals who have had experiences and uh, kind of taking their story to kind of guide. Uh, Because, you know, we want to, you know, uplift uh, people who've actually uh, have lived experience, uplift their voices. Right. Um, Because, you know, who better to um, have that input of designing a new uh, system than, you know, the people who are directly affected Mm -hmm. by it as of right now. Um, So I do a lot of that, too, which I love because, you know, I love um, talking to people and uh, trying to create solutions, Mm -hmm. uh, especially to the, you know, these uh, systemic issues uh, such as this one. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And part of what's allowed us to have Tavis is the Ohio State Bar Foundation had a racial justice grant. Okay. And that allows us, when it comes to like private donations or grants like that, that allows us so much more flexibility to do more direct advocacy in terms of uh, more radical advocacy and our abolitionist advocacy because 90% of our funding comes from Congress. Um, Disability Rights Ohio's primary role is we are the protection and advocacy system for the state of Ohio. Okay. Which means we are the one entity that can go to any facility that's providing quote unquote treatment to someone with disabilities, be that a treatment facility, a hospital, an insane asylum, a jail, any facility, and we can kick that door down, go in and speak one-on-one privately with anyone there. Okay. There's no other entity that can do that. Okay. And there's, there are times when we get to a jail or we get to a psych ward and they say, no, you can't speak to this person. You're not allowed in. We are, when we have to explain to them, we are the one entity in Ohio. There's one for every state that goes in and checks and monitors and sees how people are treating people with disabilities in facilities. So if somebody has a family member who's in jail and they are fear that, you know, something is happening to that person, they're not hearing from that person, they could call you and say, hey, this is what I feel like is happening. This is, you know, this person's name. Um, can you help me? Yeah, we would be able to call the jail and explain to them, you have to put them on the phone with us. You can't stop us from doing that. Yeah. And then what we also do is we monitor facilities. Mm-hmm. So we have just a random schedule of jails we visit, treatment centers we visit, hospitals, nursing homes okay. to go in and everything from checking the temperature of the food to finding out how often they're actually getting counseling to interviewing people one-on-one to monitor and check the facility. And if we see problems... We'll do more checks. We might do a report. There was actually a foster care facility in Columbus called Sequel Pomegranate Mm -hmm. that was shut down last year after our investigation. Oh, wow. Because there were just so many terrible incidents of how they were treating children in that facility. So that's that's our major role, which is really important, takes up most of our time, (laughs) is monitoring all the facilities in Ohio. That's serious stuff. Wow. But when we get, you know, an OSBF racial justice grant, we can bring on folks like Tavis to do safety collective work Mm -hmm. and to not just focus on finding the bad facilities and and yelling at them, but Mm -hmm. going out and like changing the system and affirmatively advocating for it to be something better. Right. That's amazing. So people on your website too can support, you know, if they want to donate to support your work, they can do that too. Okay, y'all. Well, you know what to do. I tell you this every, (laughs) every, we we have so many organizations on that are doing like (laughs) really good work. And I always make sure that at the end, I, I guess that's just me being used to doing my work. Make sure y'all support 
the organizations in Columbus that are doing great work. So we thank you both, Tavis and Tabby. There was this girl, <laughs> I, I keep saying your name and I just keep thinking of my grandparents. They took me to Mississippi when I was a little girl and there was this girl that lived next door and her name was Tabitha. Oh, yeah. So I keep, every, every time I say your name, <laughs> I think about her. Um, but yeah, so Tabby, Tavis. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. We appreciate you. And looking forward to learning more about your work in the future when we have you on again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. we're down. Let us know. Yeah. So this is the part two of a very special episode of season four. Really, all these episodes are special. Not going to lie. Season three and four have been some of my favorite seasons of Columbus Can't Wait so far. Um, but the first half... We were talking to uh, Disability Rights Ohio, and um, this second half, we wanted to kind of extend the conversation on. So I wasn't here for the first part, but I definitely wanted to be here for the second part. Yeah, what happened to you? What were you doing? Yeah, I had a dental emergency, <laughs> and it's ironic because this morning, like, I thought that I fixed everything, and then I was like, nah, everything is not fixed or whatever. So oh, I've actually mom- been in crisis all day. Oh, no. Yeah, see, look, you... Pointing at my trauma and everything. Is it your... I'm not about to tell the whole pod and everything. I'll tell you later. I feel like a lot of people... (laughs) They don't care about what's going on in my mouth. I I care. They don't... The listeners do not care about what's going on in my mouth right now. Well, okay. I just was at the dentist yesterday, so I was going to ask because, you know, I have those old silver fillings. Mm. They told me, like, those are not right anymore, so I got to get those Yeah, pull them out and sell them? Go ahead and do that and then give me the money from them because I need it. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. We're going to start to go fund me for Uncle Lumpus Gateway. Yeah. Listen, we might need one. But yeah. So, this is the second part of this episode, which is really an important episode for a few reasons. For one, we actually have our first guest who is not in Columbus or from Columbus. On the show, so this is like you couldn't wait, bro. You could not wait. Yo, Tariq has been trying to get us out of Columbus <laughs> since we started, bro. It's called Columbus. I, can't listen, wait. She's no, like, Can we just kind of can't wait. I'm not trying to get us out of Columbus, but I think because of what Disability Rights Ohio is is sort of unique. Um, in terms of organizations that we've interviewed because they have a statewide scope. And so we do have somebody on the show, Angie Williams, who is currently living in Cleveland. Are you from Cleveland? Born and raised. Born and raised in um, Cleveland and was arrested during a mental health crisis. And it's important for us to tell these stories because it's, shows that these things are not isolated incidents and like organizations like Disability Rights Ohio are really important in a state like Ohio, which is kind of lagging behind in terms of how they deal with folks who have mental health um, issues. We also have Chana Wiley on our show. If all of y'all remember who've been listening to us for a while, we did a season on police violence. And Chana is here because her brother, Jerron Thomas, was killed by Columbus police in 2017 during a mental health crisis. Um, And so she is here to talk about her brother's story, who her brother was. And both of these ladies are here to talk about why things don't have to be this way and how things can be different. So thank y'all so much for coming. So Chana, 
thank you so much for coming to talk to us. I know that like these are difficult conversations no matter how long ago it was. I know that your brother meant a lot to you. So I appreciate you coming to have this conversation with us. And first thing I think I want to do is for you to tell us about yourself and tell us about your brother. Um, I am Chana and um, my brother was the youngest. I was the second oldest. So I have three brothers total. And I uh, was really close to my brother because we lost our mom at a young age. And he looked up to me more so like a mother figure. And our grandma, maternal grandma, raised us. And yeah, I helped her with Jerron. And, you know, we just had a really close bond Mm -hmm. um, as young adults. And like late teens, I may have separated for college. But then, you know, he used to live in Atlanta with me. Mm -hmm. He stayed with me for a few years out there. Then when I moved to Texas, he didn't want to go. He came back to Ohio. And then I eventually came back to Ohio to be a caregiver for our grandmother in her older ages. So he and Mm. I both were her caregiver. So yeah, um, he was uh, amazing. He was very smart, intelligent, Mm. smartest one out of all of our siblings, never had to study for tests, always aced everything. Mm. He was a very brilliant writer, musical genius. Mm. He was compared to Nas when he was like in middle school and early high school days when he would make little mixtapes and play him in the barbershops, that's who people would compare him to lyrically. Mm. He loved music. He had uh, three children. Um, He had a scholarship to Ohio State when he was in middle school. He was offered that called the Young Scholars Program. So when, I guess you're, I don't know how they scout you, but obviously Mm -hmm. through test scores. He didn't take the college route because he wasn't into college. He was more into music and trying to make it. And he was a part of Seven Sign Regime with um, Busy Bone and uh, a lot of local rappers. Okay. Uh, Wheezy, if you know her, she was a part of that group. She's a musician and a comedian mm-hmm. out here in Columbus. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> yeah, he he loved music. You know, when he was little, he would perform Michael Jackson, do all the dances. Mm-hmm. He just, he was a natural born performer and loved it. He was very quiet, but very um, extroverted when he was on stage when performing. When he was on stage, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it changed for him. Yeah, so he sounds like an amazing dynamic person who had a lot of different talents. So tell me about when your brother realized that he was, or even when you realized or your family realized he was having some mental health issues. I think he was experiencing a lot of trauma due to people on his record label getting killed. Mm -hmm. And he found one of the label mates um, in a house dead Mm -hmm. with gunshot wounds. And after that, uh, he kind of changed, you know, and even rewinding it back to childhood trauma, mm-hmm. we lost our mom at a young age due to uh, our dad murdering our mom, and he was in law okay. enforcement. So Jerron was so young. All he did was like say, I want my mom, I want my mom, right. when he was really little. So take your time. You know, he just, he was like, You know, he lost her and, you know, you're still nursing. You're two or three years old. It's hard, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And you don't even know that you was dealt this hand in life. Right. So it starts there. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, we was adopted out here, you know, by our grandma. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, he just never had her, you know. Right. So we was all he knew. Mm -hmm. And, you know, him seeing Capo being killed or not being killed, but, you know, seeing him triggered his illness. You know what I'm saying? So once that trauma and that loss triggered that illness, he started doing different things. Mm -hmm. He started like um, having paranoia things going on, like thinking people were after him, you know, and just real quiet and secluded, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that was the start of it. I was away at college back then. Yeah. But I know from stories from my other brother, you know, that was here. That he kind of just started changing. mm -hmm, Started changing and people were telling me, like his baby's moms were telling me different experiences that they have had with him Mm -hmm. and anger outbursts and, you know, things like that, Mm -hmm. you know, just dealing with life, you know, and dealing with situations in life. And I noticed it when he came to live with me in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. you know, and even when we came back for being a caregiver for my grandma. Mm-hmm. You know, I would see him in our basement behind our bar and he'd be hiding and I'd say, hey, Jerron, what's going on? He's mm-hmm. like, they're after me. They're shooting outside. And I'm like, mm-hmm. nobody's after you. Come on, let's get up. That's just your illness. And I just talk to him, you yeah. know, and kind of talk him down from that. You right, know? right. So that's how we knew, you know, and I would advocate for him, try to get him hooked up with social security, go see doctors, try to get him on different medications, you know, and see what worked for him. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of like yeah the cycle of everything, you know. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So you you recognize that he needed somebody to advocate for him, and obviously with you being somebody that was you know his main caregiver, you knew how to talk to him and to mm-hmm. get him to where he needed to be when he was having an episode. It yeah, sounds like yeah. yeah. So if you can. Can you talk about what you know of what happened to Jerron on the day that he was taken from? Yeah, he you was and going. Your family? Yeah, sorry, he was going through a crisis, and he thought someone was after him again. Mm-hmm. And um, I t- talked to him over the phone because we talked about four times before the police got there, in which I thought it was going to be medics. Okay, but he just called me and was like, "I don't feel good." And yeah. I was like, "What's wrong?" And he was like, man, I got high earlier. And he was like, I just, I feel like I'm going to die. And I was like, why? And he just started talking about Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And then he started talking about um, bombs and someone shooting. And I know that's his illness. Right. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. I was like, nothing's going to happen, Jerron. I said, I don't know how to tell you to come down off of that high because I never did that drug. Right. But I can Google it. I said, and don't leave the house because I had a baby I was nursing at the time so I couldn't Mm -hmm. leave at the time because her dad works nights Mm -hmm. and I was like I can't leave and take you to the hospital right now but don't leave the house and just try to take a shower and you know call me back if you're not feeling better Mm -hmm. and then he called back again and was like I'm not feeling good I'm not feeling better and he's just scared you Mm -hmm. know and he wants help Mm -hmm. and he had called before from my other brother's house in the same exact crisis, thinking someone's after him, paranoid, you know, and, you know, a lot of mentally ill um, people like my brother with his diagnosis, a lot of them do um, drugs to like hide the voices or Mm -hmm. to deal with what they're going through and think that they don't want medication and maybe they can self-medicate. But anyways, 
Um, he also was due for an injection. And when the medication is low in the system, those symptoms increase as well, you okay. know? So, um, yeah, he called back and I was like, no, just take a shower. If you haven't done that, take a shower, try to drink some milk or something. Mm-hmm. I said, just do something. I said, and when he gets home from work, I'll try to come and get you. Right. He called me back again. And I was like, he's still not home, but you're going to be fine. I just tried to talk him down. Like I always do. It's yeah. your illness. Nothing is going to happen. Don't be scared. Nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I said, but if you absolutely have to, you could call the paramedics to take you to a mental hospital right. and I can meet you up there and bring your belongings because he's done that before. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'll bring your clothes and your combs and stuff and whatever else you need. I'll bring it up there when I come see you. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, I think I'm gonna have to call because I think I'm gonna die. And I was like, okay. okay. And then next thing I get a call, not even about an hour later from like some sort of law enforcement from, and they said, I'm from Riverside Hospital. Are you Chana, Jaron's sister? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, um, well, you sound sleep. He's getting a few x-rays. You sound sleep. So going back to sleep and just call up here in the morning. I said, no, I'm not asleep at all. I just talked to him. I said, why are you calling me? No police or no sheriff has ever called me, you know? And he was like, well, you sound asleep. And I was like, I'm not, you know? And he hung up the phone. He didn't what? want to identify himself and tell me who he was. Because I didn't know why he's getting x-rays if right. you're there for mental health. So then a caseworker called me and said, I don't know what he said to you, social worker at the yeah. hospital. She was like, but um, it's really serious. And I was like, what do you mean? And at this time, when she called me right back, I was already out of the bed putting clothes on. Right. Because I thought maybe he had calmed down and he was okay. And then I was putting my clothes on and I was in the car driving to Riverside. And um, she just said, he coded in, your, in the yard. And I was like, what? She said he went into cardiac arrest and coded. And I was like, from what? Wow. Like how? Mm-hmm. And she was like, there was an incident with the police and it's really serious. Okay. And when I got there, a nurse just stopped me in the hallway and was like, um, are you the sister, Jaron? I said, yeah. And she's like, oh, well, I need to prepare you for what you're going to see and what he looks like. And I was like, okay. And she told me and I was like, I just was like steps away from his room and I just went in there and I'm like, oh, wow. And I'm thinking in my head, like they killed you. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I said. I was like, they killed you. And then I thought about like the voices and everything he's gone through over all these years. And I was like, man. I was Tana, like, do you want to talk about what your brother looked like when you saw him? I mean, I can. Yeah, he had tube in his mouth. He had fluid coming from the tube like drool or saliva. His head was messed up and big, like on one side. He had bruises on every side of his face. He had uh, marks on his wrist, his Mm -hmm. knuckle, like his wrist, his legs had marks on them. His back had a mark like that long on it that looked like, um, like a freaking... I don't know, an yeah. ape or something, something so big that wow. I've never seen a bear or something. I don't know, but it was big. And I'm like, this is not a foot, you know? It yeah. was too large to be a foot. Because mm-hmm. I had them, you know, take all his stuff off and I measured every room, wound with like a fluorescent green um, ruler. Right. But um, yeah, I just was like, wow, you know? And that's what he looked like and his body was constantly shaking. And there was like a specialist that came off another floor and was like, I'm just walking in to check on your brother. He had multiple blood clots and I want to check on him. And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, he has multiple blood clots throughout wow. his body. Had he ever had any issues with blood clots 
Never. Okay. Never. So what did the police department say happened to your brother? What was their I story? called the precinct and they were pissed that I called them. And I was questioning them. And I was like, yeah, I need to talk to whoever's in charge. Mm-hmm. He got on the phone. And he was like, yeah, what's, what, who was this? And I told him and I told him who Jerron was. He was like, we didn't touch that boy. I said, you didn't touch this boy? And there's a hematologist that just left out the room talking about multiple blood clots. And they told me he was like that when he came out the house. Okay. So yeah, they were already starting their narrative of he got into a fight in the house and that's where he got the wounds from. Mm. You know, they said he slipped down a step or something and he got messed up in the house. But how could it do all of that? Like Right. And you said you had talked to him multiple times mm-hmm. and very shortly before. Even, yeah. Even okay. his 911 call was so super calm, super respectful. He's like, yes, ma'am, to the 911 dispatchers. They sent out the police. The medics were at um, Oakland and Medina sitting in a parking lot of what used to be a drugstore, okay. just waiting on the police to clear out because there were so many police on a cul-de-sac okay. of Medina by a, um, an elementary school. <clears throat> and they waited until he coded. And once he coded and they were slapping him to wake up, he couldn't wake up. That's when they let the ambulance come take him away. So your brother coded at his house? Mm-hmm. At my other brother's house. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have been fighting since 2017 to try to, for justice for your brother. Um, what has that looked like? What has happened with that? Um, it's just been long, drawn out, continuance after continuance when it comes to the courts. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you know, We had to appeal because they sided with the officers initially. Mm -hmm. So we put in an appeal. I just found out that the 6th District Circuit Court uh, denied that appeal. They still are siding with the officers and wanting to to completely dismiss the case. So they don't think that their officers used excessive force and caused his death. Okay. So that's what it's looked like. You know, it's, it's been me joining forces with other mothers that have lost their sons mm-hmm. with an organization called Ohio Families United Against Police Brutality. Um, we do a lot of community events and we uplift voices and stories like this and support mothers across Ohio that have lost their kids to gun violence. No justice on their end either. Right. So that part and then partnering with disability Right to Ohio and Columbus Safety Collective, um, sitting on that collective and trying to get some sort of justice for my brother in a form where we can get a non-police response system in place outside of the city police, not having anything to do with them, not a co-responder model, but totally non-police and having them address mental health calls. So we want to get funded through the city of Columbus, but we do not want to partner with police at all. Mm -hmm. We don't want a co-responder model because they will tell you, oh, we do have that. We have a co-responder model. They don't. They may have one or two social workers that do not go out on these calls. We want trained professionals to go out on these calls respond to these calls, peer support, you know, clinicians. It's just police aren't trained to deal with mental health and they're not trained to de-escalate, right. especially black and brown people. Yeah. Are you um, familiar with the 988 number? I'm yeah. familiar with that, but there's no advertisement hardly for 988. No, I just saw it earlier today. Like, 
Well, it was yesterday that they put it out about a new national hotline for mental health that's supposed to launch next month. Um, right. And apparently, like, it's only funded in 20 states or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, but I was just curious to know, like, what your thoughts were on that. Like, literally, I just found out about it. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to hear um, what I've, you were thinking. I've heard about that. Columbus knows about it. Mm-hmm. They plan on implementing 988, but they have not advertised it locally yet. Mm-hmm. You know, they are going to use that with their, and when I say with they, their, model. their co-responder models, mm-hmm. the police departments, mm-hmm. co-responding models, mm-hmm. meaning that police are still involved. Right. Mm-hmm. I think it's a step in the right direction, but I think that we need to have Columbus Safety Collective have the budget to put in place a non-police response unit and team that would work with 988, you know, and take mm-hmm. it out of the police's hands. Right. To take it totally, totally out totally of their independent hands. independent of that. Yeah. And if they plan to do that, they would be advertising it. They would be showing up in different spaces where we are mm-hmm. because we are showing up and we are inviting them to forums and we, we are at city council meetings advocating and providing testimony on why we need this and how and why it works in other cities and states. But it's it's a it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. What type of um, response are you getting when you like say you want to have a completely separate model? I'm getting a response of, oh, we we already have that in place. Mm-hmm. But I am educated on what you have in place. Right. And what that is is not enough because it still involves the police. Right. So it's almost like we have it, let's move on. And like they don't, I guess like they don't give any reason why they have to keep it that way, where the police are still involved. Not really. I uh, in that faith forum meeting last week with the police chief and her assistant, they mentioned another gentleman that works with them mentioned that, you know, of course we need a police to go along for safety issues, mm. and they but just it seems left like you the the plan that Columbus Safety Collective also also. Addresses, you know, any there's a, there's a piece to this that sounds that you're talking about that sounds like de-escalation would happen. So if someone's upset, people are trained to de-escalate whatever that person may be upset about. Thus, like making sure that there's no real safety issues for anyone. Yeah, around. yeah. I think a big part is the funding too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there. Mm-hmm. It's just it's always there. It's always there, <laughs> but that's why their co-responder models are. Oh, we have we have a solution for your problem, and it's not mm-hmm. a solution because just a police officer in uniform is escalating in itself to someone that's not in a mental health crisis at times. Right, mm-hmm. right. So the, pol- the police presence in and of itself takes things to another level, and we hear that all the time. And for some reason, the public is not listened to when that's, you know, what people have to say about it. So I, I'm i really listening to you. I'm, it, it's just amazing to see how you went from, you know, being your brother's older sister to now like having to educate yourself on such a high level on like what's going on statewide and nationwide and how you can stop this from happening to somebody else. And I just think that's so amazing because it sucks that like you even have to do that. But the fact that you're like doing it and you're getting involved, like this is what 
our show is about is, and this is what this season is about, is for like people realizing that like we need community more than we need all of these institutions that continue to fail when we need them to succeed. Like we need more people doing what you are doing. And so just thank you. I'm sorry that you have to be here having this conversation, but thank you so much for like sharing with us and for everything that you're doing. Thank you guys for putting a spotlight on the work that's being done and the injustice and yeah. just the problems is not just here, but this is where we are, you know? Mm-hmm. And if I can stop it from happening to my kids and to your kids and to you guys, then that's what I see as justice. Right. Because it can be any of us. And that's what I try to remind people of. How can people learn more about your work and, and about your brother? Is there a website? Is there, you know, anywhere people can get more resources about what you're working on? Yeah, um, there's a Jerron Thomas website, JeronThomas.com. Columbus Safety Collective has a website. DRO has a website. Mm -hmm. And also Ohio Families Unite Against Police Brutality. Okay. They have a website. that That we lift up all of those resources for people to learn more about what y'all are doing. Thank you. No, thank you. You know, it's a, after season two, I was like, it was a, I don't want to say, no, I'll say, like, it was just heavy, you know, um, and going back and, and um, you know, just telling this story and having to relive those moments, like, you know, we definitely want to acknowledge, like, how difficult that can be sometimes. So we appreciate you, you know, having the strength to tell this story, you know. Yeah. You and guys. for keeping your brother's name and legacy alive. So. Yeah, for sure. Justice for Jerron. Thank you. You want to take a break? So I think you can. You want to take a break real quick? Yeah, so so you, I know you have to go. Yeah, thanks so oh. much. I appreciate uh, it. Thank you. Appreciate you. This, this, every time we have somebody on and they talk about like the firsthand account of what happened, mm-hmm. it always just... It makes me so sad and pissed at the same time that I don't yeah. know what to do with all of that. <laughs> I, like, I don't know. I'll be trying not to cry. No, no that was... trying not to cry. No, that's... I but mean, it's kind of, of course. Like everything in a nutshell, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, of course, it's a lot more in there, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, to go to the precinct that dispatched the officers and to hear them... Like, I went in there with a crew of people acting like I want to bridge the gap between police and the community and what can we do better... Right mm-hmm. after Jerron's death. And they they just told me and how they deal with mental health calls. And they were like, oh, yeah, there's a guy. He pulls a, a knife out on us. He spits on us. He does this to us. But we know that he's mentally ill. And sometimes, you know, I'll say, let me go out to that call. And I'll go out and let him get in my new cruiser. And I know how to calm him down. And this is right after you killed my brother. And you, right. y'all been out to his house, too. And he's nonviolent. Right. But the other guy, by the way, what he was telling me. I knew the, the You're like, culture well, what's the of the difference? other guy. Yeah. It's the skin color. Right. Mm-hmm. What's the, what why is my brother no longer here and he mm-hmm. is yeah, so yeah. Like, I was just like, Oh really? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we appre- I like like Malcolm said, I know this cannot be easy to continue to have to relive. So we just appreciate yeah. you coming here today. And we're we'll make sure that we send you the link to the episode so you can listen and you can share with people so that they can 
they can hear his story and they can hear about what happened okay. that day. Because I mean, it's very, it's very compelling of your story versus what they ended up deciding that the officers weren't at fault. I can't see how that was the outcome, but I can't see how that was the outcome because that's what the outcome has continues to be. Yeah, yeah. So, so thank you so much. Thank and I know you have to go, so we don't want to. Okay. We don't want to hold you. Okay, I'm gonna. T- I, I, yeah, you can. Yeah, no, yeah, you good. They're gonna cut out all this stuff right here. We both have kids, so we know what it's oh, like when you go. Yeah, okay, that's cool. Like, yeah. Mom, that was t- uh, calling me just now. Okay. Yeah. Thank yeah. You, Thank you. I look forward to getting the link and maybe partner partnering oh. with you guys on anything else, if need be, in the future. Just Give me a ring. I hope we. I'm sure I'll see you around. Yeah, I was gonna come to the forum. I think it's on Wednesday. Yeah, this police chief is doing another one. I didn't make it to the last one, so they're doing it with the NAACP. So you don't like the NAACP? It's not that I don't like them. It's just oh, you fine, sweetheart. I'm right behind you. (laughs) Thank you. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you too. Yeah, did you have something in there or did? No, I oh, you no. gotta go that way. Yeah, the exit. That way. <laughs> did you did you park out this way? Yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Nah, you cool. Get disoriented. <laughs> well, I might go Monday. So if you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks. You're welcome. Good luck, Angie. All right, honey. <laughs> Thank you. Is it is it next week? Is it next week? That's what I miss. No. About. See, I've lived here for two years. I miss being on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Did you cool. like Columbus? I love Columbus. Okay. Yep. I love it. That's what I miss. I can't go to things like this. Right. Mm. Yeah. Oh. Okay. So we need you to make sure you speak into mics so okay. that everybody can hear you. Okay. And I already introduced you somewhat so you can... Tell us a little bit. Well, I'll just wait. Is is wait recording? Recording. Yeah, you never stop recording. Okay. Yeah. So Angie, thank you so much. Thank you for, for being me. here. We appreciate you coming to chat with us. As I said, like you know, you are our first guest who is, I believe, not currently living in Columbus. Um, so. Can you tell us a little bit about what your your work with Disability Rights Ohio? Sure. Um, I am on the PAMI Council Protection and Advocacy for Individuals with Mental Illness. Mm-hmm. And what we do is uh, we have different committees, diversity committee, nominating committee, policy and leadership committees. And we focus on trying to resolve issues with people who have mental illness, trying to identify areas of deficiency in institutions or facilities. Mm-hmm. We can go in. Well, we can't, but DRO can. And we advise DRO. Right. Okay. Um, you know, like um, I had a nursing home issue that I w- I'm going to bring to the table at our full council meeting mm-hmm. where a member was being denied. Um, they, he has to be taken to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And his, when we went to visit him, he's a, fa- a family member. His legs were all swollen and bruised and, and pus coming out. Wow. Okay, so then she doesn't know who I am, mm-hmm. but 
they violated his rights. He uh-huh. has a right to go to the hospital. <clears throat> okay. So that, you know, we identify those those areas and we try and help and make it better. Mm-hmm. So you all function as people that have the lived experience who's the advisory board mm-hmm. for Disability Rights Ohio. Yes, there okay. are some people with lived experiences, uh, lawyers, social mm-hmm. workers, magistrates. We have a variety right. of people okay. that chime in and we okay. all collaborate. Right. And these are people from all over the state of Ohio. Correct. Yes. Okay. Okay. So can you talk to me about sort of how you, I, I know we want to talk about you yourself being arrested mm-hmm. during a mental health crisis. So were you the person that called the police or what, what happened that day? No, my, my um, husband called the police. Okay. Because he didn't know what else to do because he couldn't calm me down. I had right. torn up the house. Okay. Uh, ran out the house, ran off. Mm-hmm. And when I got back, uh, half of Lyndhurst police or the whole Lyndhurst police force was in my yard, walking around, taking statements, talking to my daughter and uh, him. And when I sat down, he uh, identified myself and... I was still uh, I was still incoherent mm-hmm. and I was still seeing things. Mm-hmm. And um, he said he he said stand up you're going to jail for whatever number he called out and he put my arm behind my back, you know. And then I really went off mm-hmm. screaming. Mm-hmm. And the uh, other po- uh, police started to assist him and they threw me to the ground. I had on a little nighty, you know. Mm-hmm. They threw me to the ground and. Uh, me in the back of the car mm-hmm. and took me to jail. Wow. And um, I was raised in foster care okay. in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like at two, I was placed in foster care. I'm um, number six of eight children. My mom was a heroin addict and dad was whoever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, being beaten and abused throughout foster care because we didn't have PAMI and DRO. Right. Yeah. So we had to take what we had got, you mm-hmm. know, and I was used to people not caring. Mm-hmm. You know, I was used to that treatment. You mm-hmm. know, I was sexually assaulted when I was 21 by my landlord, son and nephew. And, you know, it was always my fault. Everything was always my fault. Mm-hmm. So this was kind of like another episode of it being my fault. Right. You know, right. I'm kind of used to that. So they were telling me um, I had been from that sexual assault. Um, dude bribed the East Cleveland people at the time, and they because I pressed charges and they dropped the charges. And the guy I was with trying to help me, I thought, tried to extort money off of my rape, and I was included in that. Um, so they say and they arrested me too. Okay. So I never got any kind of justice any for kind what happened justice. to me. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I thought that's where the PTSD started, but it really started in foster care. So okay. I already had a felony. They sent me to Marysville. Okay. Um, and they looked at that and they said, well, you already have a felony. So now you get another felony and we're charging you with uh, domestic violence and child endangerment. So now I have that on my record and that's what hurts me. Because wow. I haven't, you know, I once again, I really was the victim. Yeah. You know, but here I go again with this. Mm. So, and it's been, when I even came to Columbus to live, I couldn't get an apartment or a job. Mm-hmm. I kept getting turned down because of that. Because of the felony. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, nobody wants a person with domestic violence and and child endangerment. Right. You know, and I, I, it still hurts. I still, you know, that's that. That's not me. Well, you're still being affected by it, mm-hmm. and it sounds like the PTSD that you that stems from being in foster care was what was happening that day, and so now you're still being affected by what they arrested you and charged you with. Mm-hmm. So at that time when your arrest happened, were you already like involved in advocacy for mental health or was like this experience what made you kind of go down that path? Actually, no, I wasn't involved in anything. I was just trying to get through life mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> under the radar. Absolutely. You know, and um, I, I tried to take a class a CDC course to try to help other people, maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, a, a lady on the nominating committee at PAMI walked up to me in the class and told me about PAMI and DRO. And I was thinking, like, what is this, some kind of cult? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Y'all like, yeah, right, whatever. Right. So I took the info and threw it in the drawer, and, and I just kept hearing about this DRO. And I truly believe what God has for you is for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and I looked it up, and I'm like, that's what that lady was talking about. Yeah. And I reached out to them. Um, I was invited down to speak with the nominating committee. So that was around tw- that was around the time Shauna was going through her experience. Okay. Yeah, like 20, 2017. Going, going into 2018, yeah. Okay, okay. And um, I was able, they, they accepted me with my lived experiences. Mm-hmm. And for the first year, I was really quiet because I didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, so that's how I got on that. I had never heard of anything like that. I didn't even know we had anybody to advocate for us, you mm-hmm. know. So what, when you're telling me about what happened to you that day, what do you wish, what do you wish would have happened? And what the work, with the work that you're doing, what do you feel sh- like should be happening based on like, you know, what is happening with your work at Disability Rights Ohio? Like w- what you're seeing as best practices in like the mental health field, like how should folks be dealt with in that mm-hmm. kind of situation? Well, I wish that they had taken me to the hospital first. Mm-hmm. When he told me what he was charging me with, I went off again <laughs> in yeah. the cell. I mean, of course. Yeah, I went off in the cell, and then they kind of restrained me. And uh, they had uh, spoken with my family at home because they brought my medicine up. Mm-hmm. Then that's when all these other questions started coming. Oh, she's got issues. Mm-hmm. No one asked me any of that. So then they took me to the, the hospital, Hillcrest. Okay. And handcuffed me. Well, they shackled me first and took me to the hospital. And then they handcuffed me to the bed. Okay. And put stuff on my heart, um, you know, and I stayed there for a while. And then they, sh- they shackled me back and took me back to jail for two days, you wow. know. And I did a lot of crying. I think I started crying and I didn't stop crying until 2019. Honestly, yeah. it seems that's like that's traumatic. Yeah, I was just hurt. Mm-hmm. I wish that they had taken me to the hospital, maybe asked me what's wrong. Yeah. Are you okay? Mm-hmm. You know, he had a scratch on his arm. I don't know how he got that, but he's 6'4 and weighs 250 pounds. The officer. No, my husband. Your husband. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. So okay. there's no way. Where was the domestic violence? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Uh, I never touched my daughter, but they said I scared her. Okay. Yeah, so that was the child endangerment. 
Wow. Um, okay. I wish that they had been more empathetic. Mm-hmm. You know, the police show up to enforce the law. Mm-hmm. I wasn't breaking the law. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and there's a difference. And that's why they don't need to show up at all. Right. You know? So that's in, in your mind. That's the solution is is what Chana was also. Exactly. I wholeheartedly agree. Yes. Mm-hmm. What? I mean, if you have a call that says there's a person with a knife in his hand or a gun, okay, but that call wasn't like that. I know because I didn't have any of that. Right, right. Oh, I heard him say, I need help. She's tearing up the house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I feel that we should have trained professionals. I, I was trained as a peer support person, but they wouldn't let me get certified because of those charges. Okay. And what does the peer support person do? Peer support pr- people come... Um, they can relate. They have lived experiences. Okay. I can relate to what you're going through. Right. And my first question is, are you okay? You know, we need some love and empathy, some kindness, patience, mm-hmm. understanding. Mm-hmm. We don't need to be handcuffed and thrown to the ground like a criminal. No. You know. Because PTSD is something that uh, uh, I would imagine a lot of people deal with at different differing degrees and 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 how it manifests is probably different so it's not it's i i could see you being very effective in work like that because you know there are so many people who are suffering and who are not understood and i think that like even when i think about media right now around there's you know mass shootings happening it feels Mm -hmm. like all the time Mm And one of the conversations around that is always, oh, this person has a mental health issue. And I feel like, I, I mean, you tell me how you, I'm not going to tell you how I feel about it. You oh. tell me what you, what, t- do you feel anything about that? Do you mm-hmm. think anything about about mm-hmm. that conversation? Yeah. Um, who says that they have a mental health issue? First of all, were they uh, diagnosed? That's, that's the first thing they go to. Oh, mm-hmm. they must be crazy. When I have an issue, oh, she must be crazy. You know, mm-hmm. I'm no, I'm not crazy. Actually, I'm highly intelligent. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't feel that everyone has a mental health issue that has a gun in their hand and performs a mass shooting mm-hmm. unless they're diagnosed with that. Mm-hmm. And then if they do, how did they get a hold to a gun? Mm-hmm. Once again, that's the higher up. You know, guns are so accessible. People get people get mad and want to go shoot up stuff for no reason. There's shootings in clubs, mm-hmm. you know, so I it's not fair to always put something negative on people that have challenges. I choose to call my 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 issues challenges, mm-hmm. okay? Right. And it makes it easier for me to deal with. I never knew I had PTSD until that incident happened okay. because I had a really nice judge who actually saw through that I wasn't committing domestic violence. Just Satula, I love him. Mm-hmm. And he sent me, he he ordered me he, uh, back into treatment. He's, mm-hmm. You know, he wanted me to go back into treatment. You got to stay on your medicine. Mm-hmm. Go back into treatment, more counseling. And I did what mm-hmm. he said. And I was on probation for two years. But he said, if I see you back in my courtroom, you're going to Marysville. Mm. You know, and like I said, I cried through that whole ordeal because I couldn't believe I thought maybe I was being punished. You know, what had I done yeah. to deserve? I couldn't go back home. They had a restraining order. I couldn't, uh, you know, you, I can't go back to what's familiar. Everything that I knew was ripped away from me that, right. that day. So when something like that happens, even when, when, when folks, what I always tell people is when people call the police, 
mm-hmm. it's just this spiral of like mm-hmm. bad things that continue. Yes. So like, please be mindful mm-hmm. of when you're doing that because it can follow somebody for the rest of their life and ask yourself if that really needs to happen. And it sounds like in your situation, it's continuing to mm-hmm. to be something that's affecting how you're able to move through the world and what you're able to access and do because you now have these charges on your record. You know, I think about um, like just um, people, I like what you said about challenges, maybe instead of issues. Uh, I think that a lot of times we talk about people with mental health challenges mm-hmm. um, in an abstract type of way. Like we're always talking about them and not necessarily to them, yeah. which is why it was really important for us to have this episode um, as a part of this season so that we can actually talk to, you know, people that are like, you know, living with it. And I guess one of the questions that I have for you is like, what is um, it like for you? Like, you know, even in the years removed from that mm-hmm. particular incident, um, just living along your day to day, like what's it like for you, um, you know, with your challenges and, and whatnot? Um, I would have to say isolator. Mm. I've always isolated as a child because I was kind of in foster home by myself most of the time and different ones. So I'm used to being alone. So when we had like that COVID shutdown, it was no big deal to me because I was by myself anyway. Mm -hmm. And I feel safer by myself because then I know that there's no one that's going to hurt me. And I don't have the risk of going off on anybody Mm -hmm. or anything like that. So I just, you know, I like home. That's my safe place Mm -hmm. for me. What would you say are some of like the biggest misconceptions for people that like might have the challenges we're not that we're dangerous. Mm. Mm-hmm. You would never know. No, I'm, and I'm gonna be honest. I'm really nice and cool. And then people come over and start bothering me, and then when I go off on them, they want to call the police on me. But you came over here bothering me. I have a say. I'm cool. You know, mm-hmm. I like a lot of love and peace. Mm-hmm. I'm not a violent and dangerous person. Mm-hmm. Um, my my PTSD was in, is in my dreams. I didn't even know I had that until I went back to child, uh, the wow. counseling. But for years, I've been running from somebody and screaming and hollering and fighting in my sleep. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what that was. So mm-hmm. I wanted to know what that was. So when yeah. I went to counseling, I shared that. And that's when, because I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and placed Mm -hmm. on different medications, Mm -hmm. you know. So this time we got down to causes and conditions and uh, and that's what we came up with. You know, you're suffering from PTSD along with anxiety, some depression. And Mm -hmm. then I began to start to heal. Yeah, just knowing what's going on. Yeah, is that, yeah, like that's what's wrong with me? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any feelings? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you do. I just don't want to assume mm-hmm. about um, the way that, like, some, like, say, for example, schizophrenia or even bipolar, how <clears throat> those have been. Uh, oh, what's it car- called when you turn into like a cartoon? A caricature? Yeah, Animated? yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Turned into like a, <laughs> that too, though. like caricatured or or like turned into like slurs or like oh, I'm just I bipolar. Think it's overrated. Yes, it's just thrown out here. Yeah, my people say that all the time. It's right. like, oh, I'm just a little yeah. schizo. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. Please don't. Yes, mm-hmm. you don't want that label on you. You don't want to mark yourself like that. And if you are, so what? Right, but it's not a it's not a, a word to just yeah, get Yeah, you know, yeah. Everybody's, oh, I'm bipolar. 
I didn't think I was bipolar. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. lost. I was mad. I was angry. I was sad. I was hurt, confused. Mm-hmm. But that didn't have me hollering and screaming in my sleep when somebody tried to kill me. That came from being beaten upside the head and beat with extension cords and things like that through life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I never told anybody because nobody ever cared. Yeah. Nobody even knew I had gotten raped until I started sharing that. Who cares? Yeah. You know, that's what he said. His mm-hmm. dad, he was like, oh, Angie, they were just playing with you. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that stay, that's that, those kind of comments, they stay with you. They do. I'm, I was 21. I'm 57 now. And I remember mm-hmm. the rape like it was yesterday. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It sticks with you. I think that people take uh, people with mental illness too lightly. They mm-hmm. make fun of us. You see a guy or woman on the corner asking for money, maybe the little homeless or dirty. Oh, they're crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that. Right. You know, I think that we we dealt a raw deal. And with people like us on PAMI, we try. We just did a um, homeless presentation last year with the diversity committee. Okay. To see what we could do to help people during the COVID. How, I saw so many people... Homeless and on the street here in Columbus on High Street in Clintonville, Mm -hmm. which is very upscale area. Mm -hmm. Why are people balled up in the corners? How are they going to isolate? And that hurt me. Yeah. Yeah. We there was recently this was this was. Yeah, this was recently um, one of the um, encampments for houseless people. The city was clearing it out mm-hmm. um, to, oh. you know, basically like to take away people's homes. Interesting. Them, last so night. That, There's another huh? one. There's another one that just happened oh. yeah. down on the south side. Yeah. There was one that happened two weeks ago, like on the near east side. Right. And then just last night, they did another one over in the south side. Right. Wow. And so I think like what you you said was so important is that there has to be a level of empathy like that Mm -hmm. taking away people's you know home this is their home Mm -hmm. um would you do that to me right would you come in my house and just i've been homeless yeah yeah (laughs) yeah several times it's not fun but what doesn't kill you makes you stronger that's Mm -hmm. you know i always try to find a positive you know and everything because if i don't then I'll just shut down. Yeah. I like what you said about empathy because I think that that's what it really starts with. If we stop looking at each other in terms of labels and saying, oh, mm-hmm. they're this or they're that. Mm-hmm. And instead, we just look at the fact that there's a human that's sitting next to you having a human experience and, mm-hmm. and just engage with them like they're a human and not like they're a threat or like they're anything other than human. Um, th- that's where the start is because, like, if you're just looking at a human, you just like you care about them. You say, "Yo, are you good? Like, are you are you okay? Are you okay? Like, right, right. What's More going, care and going? Concern. Yeah, yeah, especially with mm-hmm. cops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if they teach that in the what is it academy? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know. I don't. <laughs> it don't doesn't seem like <laughs> my, <No>. problem, <laughs> my problem with cops is that, and, and I. I never went through the academy or anything, but when I'm listening to them talk, they say about how the first thing that they do when they get there is making sure that they're okay. 
It's like, I want to make sure I'm safe and make sure it's a safe situation, blah, blah, blah. And what you said... Assess the threat is yeah, what they say. What you said about, like, you, know, you came over to me disturbing my peace, and now you're mad at me for going off on you. It's like, bro, you're not even coming into like no. the situation trying right. to de-escalate it. Well, and what China said, I feel like it's true, is that it's when the cops show up, it's, it escalates. Uh. You know, especially in black and brown communities mm-hmm. where there's already a fear of what the police can do and get away with. It's like, you're not making me calmer by being here. You're no. actually scaring me to death. Yes. And I, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't help. Like, yeah. And then you, we're, we're all, when I walked up and saw those police there, mm-hmm. you know, there was that level of apprehension, you know, mm-hmm. and I sat down on my steps and. Once he identified me and grabbed my arm and put my arm behind my back, who wants to go to jail? Nobody. I'm already spazzed out. Right. You know, mm. and I remember, I always remember Tanisha Anderson, and I got to call her name. She died on Mother's Day, uh, maybe in 2017 or 2018, mm-hmm. from an episode. Her mother called the police to help calm her down. She died that day. They threw her on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I guess she hit her head. She never regained consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I I weighed 125, 30 pounds. Mm -hmm. So I believe there was a woman a couple years ago and um, who passed away in Cleveland in police custody who was having an episode and Mm -hmm. she also needed her medication Mm -hmm. and she passed away as well. So this is something that's that's a problem all over the state. Um, and nationally. And so, you know, we just appreciate to having you on and having an additional voice that is not necessarily even in Columbus to really show, shine a light on, you know, the work that um, the organization is doing and also like what's happening in Ohio because a lot of times it's important for us to to just like zoom out and mm-hmm. and so that it can't be said like oh this is just this this little issue here in this city like no Mm-mm. this is this is a bigger thing which we all know but listening to folks experiences firsthand is always really important so we're so grateful for you coming here traveling here and choosing to be vulnerable yes, and, like, yes. we appreciate that yeah, so thank you thank so you. much. Thank you for having me. I hope I helped. You did, and where? And well, t- tell me where people can. I, probably Disability Rights Ohio website. Does your does the board that you're involved in? Do they often have people added to the board? If there's someone who's listening to this who wants to get involved, is it is it always board members being added? Can they get involved that way? Are you uh, having any events? Uh, uh, so, yo, so on PAMI, we're council members. We right. have a DRO board. Okay. So, okay. yeah, we, we um, you can send in a letter. If you go to disability rights, you'll, we created welcome letters. We, okay. uh, what we're about mm-hmm. and the nominating committee will reach out to you. Okay. We're in the process of revising some things to make it a lot easier. Okay. Um, you know, we li- we need various people lived experiences. If you have some a training you'd like to try and conduct with us, we are we are well you know welcoming everyone. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, it's, it's 
it's a good organization. I just wish that we had had something like that when my siblings and I were growing up. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. You know, because we caught hell yeah. <laughs> in the I 70s. How would so somebody without disabilities, like, contribute or, or support what you're doing? Um, let's see. They uh, You can support financially on the DRO page. Mm-hmm. You can call and... Um, Everyone, you know, you're welcome. If you even if you want to call in and share something, or I, like I say, you want to do a training, you want to come speak with uh, to us mm-hmm. about something. If you know someone with a challenge that they need to be heard or assisted, we have a hotline, an right. intake line, mm-hmm. all that. Um, I don't remember the number, which but- <laughs> I have, which I have actually sent people to since we had the first we okay. recorded the first okay. episode. Someone called me. But that was having a renter issue. Okay. And I sent them yes. to disability rights. The board, I have to say that the DRO board is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's, they're passionate. Our director is passionate. You know, it's just really full of beautiful people. It's kind of like when I went to the joint. Okay. Yeah. Marysville is not full of bad people. Mm-hmm. It's full of beautiful people who may have had bad things happen to them or did something that they shouldn't have done. But that doesn't make us bad people. And then you tell somebody, well, you're ex-convict. Oh. Mm-hmm. So then it, there's that stigma and that label. Yeah. Stop, you know, my 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 uh, prayer is that people will stop labeling people. Mm-hmm. Right. And get you know, to know the person. Yeah. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. He's Thanks. she's my sister. Let's mm-hmm. try a little bit of that. Yeah, because you, you really have to, you really have to know a person's story for real. Yeah, and instead of what you read on their record, mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely, and don't believe everything that you there read you go, on their record you go. either. Yeah, um, I I'll just share really fast that my dad was my dad spent pretty much my whole childhood and part of my adulthood. Um, in prison and I was, you know, talking to somebody one day about, you know, how I felt about it and everything. And um, the person looked at me and said, well, how do you know they did what he, what they, how do you know he did what they said he did? And I thought to myself, I never even considered that. And it really helped me. It helped me look at, it helped me like understand like, cause I already had like a, a weird relationship with police officers, obviously because of my own background and like what I witnessed when my dad was, was, you know, taken away in that mm-hmm. whole process. But it also like made me recognize how, pe- how people, even me would take a cop's word just because that's what they said. And that doesn't necessarily mean mm-hmm. that everything that they say is the truth. And so that was a, a point where I, I, I really started to like dig deep about like, you know, about that. Mm-hmm. And so I and I started to learn my own dad's stories mm-hmm. that helped me have empathy mm-hmm. for him. And so what you're saying, what you said about Marysville really resonated with me because, I mean, he even still has friends. And I'm like, this person did what? And that's your bestie? He's like, oh, you don't know about, you don't know them. You don't know what they've gone through that led them down this mm-hmm. particular path. And so what you said really resonated oh, with okay. me. So I just appreciate you for your vulnerability, for talking to us about your childhood, talking to us about, you know, the day that you were violated. Um Thank you for sharing because these are the stories that really like touch people and help people kind of move forward in their own journey. So thank you. Thank you so much, Angie. We appreciate you. Likewise. All right. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Columbus Can't Wait, y'all. And before we go, we want to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territory of hundreds of different indigenous tribes and nations, including the Hopewell, Adena, Miamia, Shawanwaki, Shawnee, and Kaskaskia. Indigenous people are still here, and we want to acknowledge that we are on their land and recording this podcast. Have a good night, y'all.